Hello, I'm Ben Keane, your host, and you're listening to a Virgin Startup podcast produced with support from our friends at Virgin Money. This podcast is a recording of a meetup which took place in August 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic. Virgin Startup meetups are free events designed for founders just like you to hear from incredible people and network with like-minded entrepreneurs. We hope that you come away from them feeling inspired with some practical action which you can take into your own startup. This episode was about something essential to any business, storytelling, and crucially how to tell your brand story and use it to your advantage against the competition. Joining me to discuss was James Hurst, Global Creative Director at Pinterest, and this guy knows his stuff, alongside Alice Rose from inclusive beauty brand DeepXM and Corey Jones, who wrote social media agency Untapped. Our panel shared their insights and expertise on how to build a startup brand which connects and how to put your founder's story at the heart of it. Welcome, all of you. Good to see you here. Thanks for, thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for having us. Here we go. So we all just met backstage. There's, a, there's an actual backstage here. Uh, had, some, had some champagne, talked about our lives for about 30 seconds, and here we are. So we just connected for the first time as a team. Oh, yes. What's in the mug, James? <laughs> just vodka. Pure vodka. Just vodka, straight up, <laughs> straight whatever up. it takes. So we're approaching 300 people um, following, following the story, so no pressure. Um, but what I thought where we could start is like our personal journeys and because it's because they're, you know, interwoven with the brands um, that we've built as as uh, as as entrepreneurs or whatever, however we describe ourselves. So, um, uh, Alice, I wondered if you could take us kick us off by taking us back to where your entrepreneurial entrepreneurial journey started. What was the catalyst and, and how did that story evolve? Yeah, so I think. Um so I run a brand called Depixem and we are, I think essentially me and Vic, so Vic's my business partner, we got sick of the bullshit in the industry, like, sorry to start off swearing, but. You that- just start off, start off <laughs> as you need to go on, Alice. Well, what, we're not ta- what industry, we're not talking about the stationery so, industry, are we? No, we're not. Okay. It's the beauty industry. So um, while it's, a, you know, it's an amazing industry and that's kind of where I started my career and I was like, oh my God, this is where I want to stay forever. Um, like it makes it does make people feel a bit shit sometimes because you know you walk into like department stores and you are confronted with these images of skinny white women and yeah they're beautiful but it you know everyone's amazing and I think we just wanted to kind of really change the industry and break some boundaries and do something that was sustainable and it was good for the world and it was real because I think you know a lot of a lot of the beauty industry exists to kind of make you buy more stuff. Whereas we've kind of created some, it's, I mean, a little prop. Um, so they're cosmetic emulsions and you can use them absolutely everywhere. Um, and people were like, you know, you're not going to make loads of money doing that. You know, we can create so much the beauty industry, you know, there are so many products, but we were like, we just want to make that one amazing product that, does everything for everyone and it it has no rules and I think that's kind of where being a startup is amazing because you create your own rules and doing something you really believe in I think that's where we were just like we got tired of being in corporate environments because so how long how long was that journey Alice from 
uh, from sort of, you know, going off into your career to getting tired, to getting frustrated to the point that you, you and your, your co-founder were like, we're going to go for this. Cause it was, people are all at different stages and, and we, you know, was it real sort of like frustration and, and to the point of like, we hit, you know, what, what tipped you over the edge? What was the moment that let you go? We've got to go for this. Um, I think so. Vic had always wanted to start a business and um, I'm very much like, we'll try anything. I'm like, yeah, 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 I'll try it. Um, so I've, I was in the beauty industry for about five years. Um, and I think we were doing, um, we were doing a project that was about faster market and we just couldn't get anywhere. And I think that's what made us realize we can do this on our own. Like we don't need to be in a corporate environment and why, just why not? Why not try it? Because I think there was a, there's a real calling for it. And I think there's a real movement towards small businesses and really supporting real stories and authenticity. And I think that's where we were just like, why not just do it? And how much of, of that when you decided to go for it was heart overhead or was it a good mixture? Did you like, oh, we've done our market analysis, there's some clear data out there. We know from all our experience in the industry that this is an opportunity versus this is in our guts. Uh, we feel it really strongly and we're going to, we know it's going to be challenging, but we really want to have a go. What was the balance there? Cause I think a lot of the time people aren't sure which, which to listen to more, the head or the heart. Um, I think for me, it was definitely more heart. Um, as I, with a lot of decisions in my life, my head comes after. <laughs> so I was just like, yeah, Paul. And I think when you really believe in something and you know, it's right and you've got up, it's kind of hard not to do it. And I think, you know, obviously we've all got bills to pay and things like that. So have savings, have something that can support you. But if if you truly believe in it that much, I think just do it. Right. That's and, um, and, and before we come on to Corey's story, let's um, tell us a little bit more about the brand itself that you created. So how did you come up with... Uh, the exact product you were going to launch with, the name, the the tone of voice, the the, the you know your palette of colours. Like, what what was it? Very carefully designed, or was it all like one night bottle of red wine, throw it all out there, and let's see, let, let's go for it. I mean, red wine is always heavily involved, um, but we so we sat through a lot of like supplier presentations and everything. So you've got like one product, and they were like, "This is just used for your cheeks," and we were like, "No." Makeup artists use everything for everywhere anyway. So we were just like, why not? We knew the suppliers. We knew where to go to. Why not create that one incredible product for everywhere? And in terms of like the name, so the name, we did have a different name until like three weeks before we had to print the tubes. And then we got challenged on trademark. So we literally had to make a word up. We had like hundreds and hundreds of post-it notes. We just had bits of words that we liked and like sounds that we liked and then just made it up three weeks before we had, no, was it three? It was, it was very short notice before printing. Because it depicts you, am I saying it right? You can say it however, we get this question a lot. So we say, so I say, um, Okay, because the funny thing about it is like one of the, the rules of, of branding that I, I was I learned was like, if they can't spell your name or say your name or your brand, you're going to be in trouble straight away. But I guess mm -hmm. you're kind of proving that wrong. And there are other names and brands that prove that prove that wrong as well. 
Um, so you picked a name at random. And then what about the rest of the, the branding, the communications? Was it all your own voice? Was it just like, because often you, and Corey, you'll, you'll be able to give us your insights on this, but often it feels like, okay, you've got to have a certain tone, but it's really, really hard to detach your way as a founder from communicating, whether it's written or, or verbal or however, um, from, from, the, from the brand itself. How did you do it? Um, so I think it is a lot of kind of mine and Vic's tone of voice um, because I think we wanted to make it authentic. And I think if you try and, if we, we tried to be something else, it would never be authentic. So it was, it, we wanted it to be a relatable brand. And I, I think we're relatable and, you know, we knew what people were calling out for because we'd, we'd seen it and we'd heard it and we'd, we'd heard all the questions and like people saying, I want this and I want that. So I think that made it a lot easier to kind of figure out in the voice and where the brand was going and all of that around it. My, uh, when the, the five minutes I spent on your site, cause I haven't been on it yet until, until I saw you, the lineup for tonight was that it reminded me of a magazine called the face in the nineties. I grew up in the nineties, which was this kind of like, I guess it's equivalent of ID mag or something. Now it was like, yeah. Right, basically, like presenting uh, pop culture in a in a quite a, like not aggressive is the wrong word, but like more in your face kind of way or more creative way. Um, and you look at the the language on your site and the, like the, the photo shoots with your team, which are fantastic. They tell the brand story straight away. So everyone, we should drop the link in here so people can have a look while we're talking. Um, but it's really strong. So you've you've got you've got something strong there, which is really exciting. So. Um, thank you for the intro, Alice. Corey, moving on to you. Tell us about your own personal journey as, a, as an entrepreneur and in the world of branding. Yeah, sure. Well, I resonate a lot with, with what Alice was saying about why she started. I think um, our kind of the way we came to be was sort of twofold in that one, I was really hating my old job. <laughs> I feel like um, I should sometimes downplay that a bit based on who's in the room, but I'm assuming that no old kind of colleagues or, or boss is watching. But it, it was just at the stage where I was getting fed up of asking for annual leave allowances and having them rejected and, um, you know, just wasn't enjoying kind of how slow moving that nine to five was. Even though I was working in social media, I was constantly having to go to stakeholders and people that, that had no idea what social media was about to ask for different things that we could make happen for the brand. So alongside that kind of growing discontent, I was also looking at, at the landscape and seeing just how many brands were doing social media really, really badly and making really basic mistakes and feeling really stressed and overwhelmed by how they should connect with their audience and how they should use social to get more revenue and more traffic, um, you know, whatever it was that their aim was and kind of saw that as a, a bit of an intersection. That's something that, that I could help with from my experience in previous roles and, and bring to initially a startup audience we started working with. And, and, you know, the, the social, the rise of the social media agency is a funny one, isn't it? Because, you know, helping people tell their stories through these amazing channels that we all have access to is something where initially everyone was like, oh, yeah, I need help with that. And then everyone was told, no, no, you can all do it yourself. And now we're in this kind of blurred world where you're like, you can do it yourself, but to do it really well, you need to work hard at it or you need help. So how have you gone about like figuring out who, who you work with and uh, building, it, building that up as a business? We kind of go for a mix of both. So we have some offerings for brands if they want to do things themselves, but they feel like they need that extra 
helping hand or you know they're not quite sure what the strategy should be to get from a to b then we run training workshops and, and do one-off strategy but the, the bulk of our work is for brands that are just like you know we don't understand social media we don't have the time to to give it you know what it deserves in-house and so then want to to work with an agency um and i think you know brands really need to think about where social media fits within their overall marketing scheme like it should never be the only way that you're marketing to people and think about how much you you know personally know about social media how much your staff your team knows about social media and whether you think having an agency there you know is is worth uplifting and and whatever you can get back um in terms of return on investment for your brand or if it's something that you think you can you know learn and and give it your best stab at yourself and and uh, we'll, we'll co- you'll have loads of tips for us in a minute about how to how to tell your story or good examples. But when you've, in terms of who you've worked with, what's been, you know, who's who have you who do you really enjoy working with in terms of helping them tell their story? Um, because like, what is it? What is it about startup? What kind of startups do you work with? You go, I love working with these people because of this. Like, what's their? Is it something in their approach or how, or what the problems they're trying to solve? What is what is the thing that connects? the people who are doing it well there's definitely commonalities i mean shout out rebel book club firstly obviously um you guys do do yes Corey, your job is done tonight no (laughs) i know we did Corey untapped digital worked on rebel book club full disclosure (laughs) uh it made a big difference to us oh good but commonalities for brands who do it well i i think the whole the great thing about having a startup you know maybe you don't have as big of a team as as bigger brands do or you don't have the same budget levels or but what you do have is that kind of that desire to do things a bit differently and to to innovate and that speed that you can do things differently as well so the brands that we've worked with that do things really well is it, those brands where you know we can email one day saying this is trending today and we think it'd be great for you to jump on and there's something out on social by the end of that day whereas bigger corporates it's like you know, you have to check with 10 different people who, who are like the brand police of, of what should go out on social. So um, Second Home, I think, is a nice example of someone we've worked with who's doing good things right now. They're a co-working space based in London, which is obviously a very difficult uh, industry to be in right now because people don't need office space. But they've completely pivoted with, with what they've been offering during this period and doing lots of different yoga classes and pilates classes online to everyone not just to their members but just using it as an opportunity to to build the pipeline of people who know about them um and offering different like lunch and learns and and things with different speakers that are interesting to their kind of startup audience um and they bring that through on social really nicely as well it's interesting about this idea of both speed which is almost like not to be confused with quantity, because I think this is sometimes where we feel overwhelmed as entrepreneurs, like, oh, we've got to get so much volume of content out, which is which is exhausting and unsustainable. But the speed of reaction, but also whilst maintaining the quality. Um, and that's where like, like how you design your brand and your comms and like what you're what you're representing is so important, right? Because if you don't get that, if you don't nail that on or you're not confident in what that is, it just is confusing. Yeah, definitely. And I think because social media is so accessible to so many people and because it it can take, you know, one minute to fire off a quick tweet, I think so many brands think of social media as like a quick win or something that doesn't take that much time. But, you know, actually there's, there's some posts you'd put on social media that would be seen by more people than if you placed an ad in a magazine or if you booked a billboard somewhere where there's, you know, massive footfall walking past it. So just because it's 
you know, quick to do in some senses doesn't mean that you shouldn't put as much thought into it as you would do other elements of your brand. Yeah, definitely. Or you do what one of my favorite brands of the last couple of years do, which is take tweets and put them on billboards led by donkeys as activists. Amazing story. (laughs) If you're in the UK, they tried to stop Brexit. They didn't succeed, but they're a pretty amazing group of, I think, four hipster dads in North London who've put, put their creative skills to good use. Um, thank you, Corey James. Good evening. Great to have you with us. Um, what's your story? Well, it's good morning for me because part of my story is I'm in sunny San Francisco, or actually foggy San Francisco today. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm the global creative director at a company called Pinterest. Um, I've only had this this gig for about a year or so. For a really long time, I help brands build themselves and define who they are. I've done that for a really long time. Um, so for the last five or so years, maybe slightly longer, I worked for an agency called Design Studio um, in London for a chunk of that time and then came over to San Francisco to build out the studio here and then built out a studio in New York. And I think we, uh, I couldn't even begin to put a number on the number of brands, but we worked on brands that I'm sure you've all heard of and lots of brands that um, were just trying to get their sea legs and just trying to get going. And the thing that I've learned over that time is the importance of, of clarity, like just being really clear about what it is that you're doing. Uh, Alice, you said uh, something that I you know, have said a, a million times myself, it's about the head and the heart. And I think sometimes people forget the heart because they get so focused on the head. The, the only addition I'd have is also the hand. So for me, a great brand is made out of good intellectual strategic thinking, great emotional responses, but also the beautiful details that make something worth visiting. It's interesting in the chat, which is very distracting, um, but excellent to see going on. Um, it's great because the thing that people pick up on are the little details and the, and the thoughtfulness in in what a founder or what, what a brand has actually done. And I'm a big believer in that. And um, Connie, what you were saying about, you know, the sort of the idea that, oh, something is easy to do or, it's, or you know, we've all got these things, so we must be able to do this? Why do we need to have all these people that have like designer or social media strategists in their title? Why do we need them? I think we need them because it's intentional. And um, and yes, we can say anyone can say anything quickly, but saying something that is right and saying something at the right time and saying something that's part of um, a bigger story, uh, as we're here to talk about, um, is really really hard to get right. Having now sort of transitioned from small, I think a bird just flew into my house. I think it's fine. It flew off. Um, uh, uh, Having gone from that sort of small, uh, well, we're about 80 odd people in design studio by the time that I left, but having helped a lot of small um, startups get their feet and and understand how important it, because you're really equipping everybody with the tools and the confidence to sort of execute. You know, you have to play about a gazillion different roles all at the same time. To the other end of the spectrum where you realize you're in this sort of this big machine and you've then you've got to say, right, someone has got to send, someone's got to tweet on behalf of Pinterest. And that's a daunting prospect. You know, we've got like a, an army of people with opinions on what that tweet should be, how it should land, when it should go, what the right thing is, what's everyone else talking about. So you see that sort of the difference in how um, organizational structures uh, change the way that some of these tools sort of um work and and the role of those tools within an organization as well uh it's, it's fascinating and um what james take because you've because you've done so much um what is what have been the 
I guess a couple of standout stories for you. And we're, we're, we're spe- in this community, we're especially interested in doing things without a lot of resource, right? So it's the real creative stuff. Um, what, are the, what are the stories, the people, the, or the projects that you've been involved with where you've gone, they've, just, they've nailed that for these reasons without a huge budget necessarily? Well, a long time ago, uh, Design Studio. Design Studio had just finished the, the brand for Airbnb when I started. So my first day at Design Studio was the day that that brand launched. And Design Studio crafted that, that brand. Um, oh. And as part of that, Belong Anywhere, you know, those two words were, sort of came out of that process. Then, sort of subsequently, me working at Design Studio, I got to work on lots of different projects. I had to breathe life into that. So those two words... You know, I think sometimes people think there's so much language in this industry. Sometimes people call it a value proposition. Sometimes it's a mission. Sometimes it's a purpose statement. Whatever people feel comfortable with, it's just a bit of clarity. You know, it's a bit of clarity about what the business is there to to do and what it's there to make people feel. The thing, the standout thing for me was really seeing how how Airbnb took those two words and like forced life into them. And we did a lot of projects at Design Studio to help them do that. But they also did lots of that themselves. And an agency's work is only good enough if, if a client can pick it up and run with it. So the standout things for me were um, uh, they turned all of their meeting rooms into listings. So, uh, uh, you know, um, what, a, what your actual apartment might look like. So you go into a meeting room and you might feel like you're in Honolulu. You might go into another one. You might feel like you're in Harringay. You can choose which meeting room you want to go into. Um, and, uh, and I think that that is like an, an excellent example of Airbnb taking those two words and sort of making sure that it's not just sort of something that goes on the end of an ad, but it's something that becomes core to the culture. Another um, uh, key client, and I'm just using the big, the big clients because I think they'll resonate more. We did the same um, level of detail went through every, every project, uh, hopefully, that we worked on. Um, but we worked on the Premier League's uh, uh, rebrand probably about four years ago now. And um, at the core of that, we got this line, we all make it. And that was kind of critical. You know, it's like there's a model that I've used in my head for about 15-ish years now, um, which forces us to look at what is going on in the world, the context of uh, a brand doesn't live in isolation. Every brand is part of this big matrix of things. And that matrix of things is changing. Some of those things are political. Some of those things are society changing. Living in America now, like I'm seeing society change at a, you know, faster than I've ever seen anything happen before. Um, we'll make it. When we worked on that, soccer or football, sorry, football was having an absolute crisis moment um, in the press, in the role of football players, the bad behavior of football players, how much money football players were making, uh, the high price of tickets to go see a football match. And, um, and at its core, that was not the role of the Premier League. The Premier League takes all of the money that comes in to, uh, usually through sponsorship or now they sell it directly through TV rights, and they distribute that to all of the different clubs based on how much stuff outside of the big games people watch those clubs do for their communities. So whether or not they do stuff for underprivileged kids, whether they have um, leagues that are playing to underrepresented minorities. And I and I'm not I was not a big football fan. Um, lots of funny stories about me working on this project. But um, uh, uh, what I loved about it was the sudden like 180, my perspective on football just went 180 degrees. And I realized this was the Premier League is about the wider community. It's sort of the vacuum that's been left over by the big institutions that I think people have sort of stepped away from or, or stopped looking up to. 
And, um, and the thing that I think is amazing is uh, since we stepped away from that, uh, you know, and they took that language that we had developed for them, uh, it was so heartening to see them take out full-page ads probably about a year and a half ago um, with uh, the LGBTQ um, charity, I can't remember what it's called now, but they've taken out full-page ads in every single newspaper um, with a really clear mission statement that football is about everybody and everybody being on the pitch. And then a friend of mine um, who's a photographer uh, got commissioned to do a project where they flew him to every single game um, to take pictures uh, of all of the people not on the pitch, not even in the stands, but outside of the stands uh, for an exhibition that has then gone on with the British Council around the world about the role of football in society. I think that's when, when brand storytelling is at its best because it gives a bunch of people who might have thought, oh, brand, you're talking about my logo or you're talking about my color. And I think that those are important details, but that's not the brand. The brand is giving people the confidence and the clarity about how they should behave and how that behavior is going to give them some sort of advantage um, more broadly. Those are two, two um, examples. Of, of oh, they're people. great. They're great examples that we can all relate to. James. And just, just finally, because I want to bring us in the, the next page of the conversation up to like this year, <laughs> now everything's shifting, or maybe it's not. Um, uh, in terms of how, like, if you were, if we were, the four of us now were like, we've got a new idea, we're going to launch it in, you know, in two weeks' time. Um, and how, you know, it's just our time. We haven't got budget to, to hire a version of you or a design team to, to bring this thing to life. Um, what would be your sort of uh, kind of approach to like, okay, these are the core things we need to go through in order to figure out. Would it be to get to that point where there's there's a, a sentence or a phrase or something that encapsulates about, that empowers us, enables us to feel really clear about what we're doing and then can do all the communications that we need to do? What would be the basic steps for that? Yeah, I've got six questions I think every every um, brand, every startup should ask themselves. So the first one is, why did we set up this company? Like, what's the thing about the company that, um, and it doesn't need to be deep and meaningful. Alice, I thought your sort of candid honesty, and Corey, I thought your candid honesty about like, I just was a bit pissed off. Well, that's okay. That's a good enough reason. Um, it'd be good to like be really nuanced about like why this thing, like that's why we're moving away from something, but why are we moving towards this thing? So we could move in lots of different directions. I think it'd be really important to understand the context that we're setting up um, any sort of business or any sort of initiative. So whatever our idea is, what's the context? What are the technological things that might change or have an impact? What are the, you know, direct-to-consumer brands have never had more power and more leverage than, than they have today as a result of all of the great innovation that's happened? So contextually, how's that going to change? What's the sort of the rise of these mega marketplaces going to have in terms of when they disintermediate our relationship with our customers, what does that mean for us and our brand and what can we do? And there are so many analogies. Look at what's happened to airlines um, as a result of being disintermediated by Google. Um, category. Uh, what's the category that we're in? How do, what are the category codes that we need to understand to communicate? Oh, this is about beauty and we're communicating about beauty, but how do we make sure that we're using those category codes in a way that people understand, right, this is my beauty brand, not any beauty brand. And I think that's sometimes people go all in on, oh, I've got to look like this type of brand that they forget they've also got to differentiate within that landscape. And I think that, you know, the people that are absolutely nailing that, I think, still acne. You think of the name for that sort of brand, terrible name, but amazing name. Uh, think about the way that they're executing it. Some of it, you're like, well, how have they done that? 
but it's because they've, they've understood the codes that they're, that they're communicating in, and then they subvert the codes with a lot of credibility. Um, uh, the competition, who do we think the competition are today might be, but also more importantly, who do we think the competition might be if we were to go five degrees to the left or the right, and almost imagining, you know what, if we tweaked our business a little bit, does that give us more sort of runway or space to play? Or are we going to suddenly run up against a giant that we don't know whether we're quite ready to deal with with right now? And being sort of um, uh, something that we talk about, or I, I talk about a lot is uh, at Pinterest. People, th- people are always like, oh, our competition must be sort of TikTok and um, Facebook and other other big platforms. I don't think that's that's true. I think our our, our mission is to help people live inspired lives, and um, and that means our competition is uh, spending time with your family. Now I know if it comes down to spending time on Pinterest or spending time with your family, people should always choose family. So it's also understanding that doesn't mean that you're like against your competition. It's working out how do you play with with that and how do you sort of plug into the that, that stuff. And the last two, who are your community? Who are you talking to? Where do they live? Where do they hang out? What do they do? Why don't they know you? My biggest bugbearer when people come up with like 12 uh, profiles of who they think their, their audience might be because you're, make, you're trying to build a brand for everyone. I think being really disciplined and trying to, to define the exact person that you're talking to will just help you be, communicate much more clearly. Not everybody in the world isn't going to love your brand. You're not going to be right for everyone. So just be right for the right people and and you'll go a lot further. And then finally, what are your capabilities? So everyone had, you know, the four of us, if we were to set up a business today, we'd all bring specific capabilities. Let's be really honest about that. And the last thing I'd say about, and then I'll shut up. um, I think that there are, um, there's inductive thinking and deductive thinking. So it's understanding your capabilities flex. And depending on your mood, you might be thinking, oh, shit, we just need to follow best practice and get this thing done. Or you might be thinking, you know what? I think today's the day we're going to dream and we're going to go in a different direction. And talking about that and, and, you know, we try and kick off a lot of conversations by sort of acknowledging the state of mind that we're in because it actually helps you have a more fruitful conversation with people whose job title kind of becomes irrelevant especially in startup land and you've just got to think right we're in this mode right now how do we make the most out of being in this mode working so i think if you ask yourself those six questions um and you map that that stuff out i think you've got a pretty good playbook for them deciding right this is what this business does yeah, branding class, James. Thank you. There are, there are 296 other people also clapping away. Uh, that's brilliant. So the questions are just scribbled down in the in the chat there. So um, copy and paste them onto a doc and start writing the answers to them now uh, because they're, they're brilliant questions. The two that r- really resonated for me is the competition that's slightly out of view, the non-obvious competition. So Rebel Book Club, we're a non-fiction book club, not, you know, not an average book club for people who love nonfiction. And a lot of people say, well, your competition is other similar book clubs. And I was like, well, no, our competition is fiction. It's people who love fiction because if they're reading fiction, they're not reading nonfiction. And there are others, right? But that's also, it's like family. That's not a problem. In fact, that's a good thing because if they're fueled by fiction at some point, they might want to explore nonfiction. And then here we are. Um, And then the other one that I loved was... um, uh, who are your community? And it reminds me of Seth Godin's uh, his his idea of a minimum viable uh, audience. So not not just a product, but like 
what's the smallest version of a target customer base that you could reach? And this is like, Corey, a lot of your work is about, is it's like, how can you reach them with a very, very spit, like a message that feels, oh, this was made for me, because that's the best branding in the world, right? Um, and and the, and it challenges our bi- ideas of business models, doesn't it? Because we're like, well, I have to reach this number of people, otherwise it's not sustainable. But if you, and the, the Airbnb story is brilliant, isn't it? Because it's like, I think it was Paul Graham at Y Combinator said to the founders, like, what what could we do now that would would not scale this organization but would really help our few customers and he and they said well if we if we produced amazing photographs of the 500 apartments we have instead of the crap versions we have then the hosts and the people staying there would be really happy but we can't afford that he was like do it and of course the rest is history um thank you james so let's bring it up to let's bring up to speed and and please um uh throwing questions everyone who's following along uh in the chat as well if you've got specific questions or general questions um throw them here and then you can ask them directly to to some of us um in the sessions in about 20 minutes when we go there um but in terms of the world we're now in 2020 uh the world has sped up and not not just in the us but all over the place for for good and bad reasons but how does this impact the way we do do you know branding or what the way we tell our stories um should we be more transparent adapting to everything commenting on everything um uh, we we just read this book at rebel book club um stormzy which is about the rise of this brilliant crime artist in the uk and it's all about the people around him so that they call it the murky brand and the, the fascinating thing was was that they just like all individually just went at this thing because they knew it was going to work um and it was like they the question the group that turned up to our rebel book club the other night got asked it's like oh what about wiley you know because he's just been a famous crime artist has been seriously racist on twitter and uh they said look we're not here to comment on every person in the grime industry you know that's not how it works so this is complicated now in 2020 so how do we do it cory like in the world of social media what what's what are there new rules for the time that we live in I think there are new rules, but in the sense that brands are kind of being reminded of what the old rules on social media have always been. So it's always been advisable on social media to listen to your audience. It's always been advisable to, you know, take a stance and support good causes and denounce bad ones. Um, It's always been advisable to be community led and offer value and do online events like this for, for people, even if they're not your direct customers that are putting money in in the bank. So I think this time where everyone's moving so much online and don't have these in-person communities anymore, it's reminded a lot of brands of what social media was actually there for. And and hopefully they're using it more like a community tool rather than just broadcasting promotional information that people don't really care about. Yeah, absolutely. And have you got a couple of good and maybe bad examples that you've seen this year? Um, that, I feel that, like I have that more, worked or not. I feel like I have more bad examples that um, that come to mind. But I think actually some of the big brands did this really badly, like um, particularly in, in email marketing as well as social. I don't know if anyone remembers the first week of lockdown. It feels like literally five lifetimes ago now. But there were so many emails coming through from brands that it was it would be you know like, "Hi, I'm John, CEO of Sainsbury's. We care about you so much." And I'd be like, "Oh." never heard of john before you know never he doesn't appear in any of their comms usually he, it's not a familiar face and it would just sound like these really kind of copy and paste boring messages that anyone could have said so i think the the brands that did this well were the ones that 
genuinely the message was really authentic and was saying something a little bit different about how they could support people um more yoga is an example that comes to mind of there are um yoga studio based in london i think they've got maybe like 20 different sites now around london but in all the emails and social they've been putting out they've been really honest like you know we're a small business this is difficult to survive if you could consider joining us online rather than offline we'd really appreciate it um there was a nail studio in east london i can't remember the name now but i saw them post saying to be really frank our payroll is you know ten thousand per month and right now we're making zero so we've done these online packages if you could buy some it'd be really helpful and stuff like that i thought like that's genuinely really refreshing to give a bit of an insight into how this is impacting you as a business in an honest way rather than just a kind of welcome to these unprecedented times we're here to support you type thing and a billion buzzwords that we've heard from any other brand and it sounds i mean a lot of this stuff feels so obvious when you hear us hear it being talked about in this kind of forum but like that kind of being more human as a brand being more like it, it's not this is a this is what it looks like behind the scenes is that not like in this sort of startup community world that i'm part of like that feels like common practice or com- the common approach is it is that still quite radical that that way of doing things do you think i think it can be for brands that feel like they need to be super polished and look like they've got it all together um to the outside world and I think that there's still a lot of founders that I speak to that don't want to be part of their brand or, you know, they want to kind of disassociate themselves and their personal brand from the startup itself when actually that's such a powerful thing that that you can do to be known as the founder and to, you know, speak at events or or put your point of view across. And and I think that adds a massive element of, um, you know, authenticity and everything to it that, I think a lot of people still don't really want to do or don't feel comfortable doing. Yeah, easy to talk about, harder to put it into action. Alice, what have the last few months been like for you and how have you adapted? Um, the first two months, probably, we, you know, we and Vic had a, had a talk about it and we were like, does it feel right to post right now? So we were kind of in the, we don't want to be bombard- like bombarding people with content about cosmetics, like, we're all trying to just figure out what life is now. Like it was a massive, like we're in a pandemic. Like everyone was just like, what the fuck is happening? And we were, we were included in that. I was like, I don't know what, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I don't, I don't understand like what the world is. And I think, you know, we had a lot of feedback from people being like, you know, we want to see that and we want to, you know, we want to see color and we want, like your content is so uplifting and positive and we really want that in these times. So I think we've seen a massive like increase in customer engagement and like people playing with color because, you know, you're not, you're not going out. So you can try that look or you can try, you know, maybe you've always wanted to try a yellow eyeshadow, but you've been scared about what someone at the bus stop might think. We're all at home now. So this is a great time to play and experiment and just try stuff. And I think, in like the startup world as well, like I've seen a lot of businesses kind of emerge from this and be so authentic and so like honest. And I think that's really refreshing and it's really nice. And, you know, there is a kind of distrust now towards some bigger brands because because of what like Corey was saying in that, you know, the CEO of Sainsbury's and everyone's like, I don't know who that is. So I think the smaller brands really have ability to kind of tap into and like, 
like you were saying, the founders, we, me and Vic were kind of like, oh, you know, we don't know if people want to hear from us. That's kind of now, you know, we know that people do. And that's our kind of point of difference. We are the point of difference. So really, like, use that. Yeah, and that's this is a question that comes up. I know in the Virgin Startup community, it's come up a lot. And for all three of you, like, how do you know what's right? Whether it's like the personal brand, like this is this is our story, at least at the start, or or when do you switch over to now the heroes in this story are our customers or the people that make it happen? Right? When do you go from the the faces is us to the faces the the customer? Um, it, that I know that's it depends answer right, but I'm I'm curious about your your positions on it. So Alice, what how do you figure that that bit out? Or can it be both? I think it can be both. And I think definitely for us, like we kind of, we're not makeup artists and a lot of, you know, the main consumer for our brand is makeup artists because they're used to this kind of format of product and all of like using one product in so many different ways. Um, But I think, you know, we hero all of the people that create this amazing content, but also we talk to like, people that aren't quite sure or like people that want to know our story and like we're product developers. That's what we are. So people want to know that and people want to know the story, but I think you can do both and like hero the consumers because essentially they're the people that the brand is all about. It's not about us. It's about them. So I think it's finding that balance. And it's a journey, right? So James, what, what do you have a perspective on this? Like who, who should be out front? as the face of the story? Well, I'm not sure who should be out front. I think that that will be different business by business, situation by situation. But I do have a slightly unusual perspective, I think, where at Pinterest, we have um, this weird insight into what people are thinking or what um, our community is thinking because we see what people are looking for. And we, we sort of charting 2020 through what people are looking for has been sort of a like a really sort of humbling and interesting way of understanding the world that we live in. And as a platform, we've been famous. I think we are famous for people that are planning to do something. They might be, you know, building a business. They might be decorating a room. They might be getting married. We tend to be, when people are in planning mode, they come to Pinterest. And that's sort of been a bit of a sweet spot. This pandemic here, and people stopped planning. It wasn't about what's going to happen next year. It's about what am I going to do today? And And we saw this, like... 108, it was like we stopped being Pinterest and we started being Google. You know, people were looking up like, where can I get food? Like, where can I get food today? What can I do with my kids now? And we sort of, we saw the time span that, you know, we were not equipped for it, um, for that sort of change. Like the, the platform's not really built for that. So people started using you for search? For looking for stuff to do immediately. So yeah. it became like a very sort of immediate thing. The thing that's been really gratifying and, and interesting is, Human beings, you know, we're social animals and we sort of we've seen people like step out of that very quickly. So probably about two months ago, three months ago, we started to see um, people go back into planning mode and people looking and actually the plans becoming much more sort of audacious, probably as a result of, you know, I mean, we're still in lockdown in California. We we went into lockdown sooner than people went into lockdown in in the UK. We're still in lockdown and it looks like we're going to be in lockdown forever. But, um, you know, so people have um, the plans and what people are starting to put together um, on the platform are really interesting. So the thing that I would say for brands, um, I think sometimes brands follow culture 
And so what, ha- what happens contextually, brands think, all right, uh, we've got to start doing some of that now because that's what people are doing. I think that's dangerous. I think that the brands that are getting it right are the brands that have been really true to their own North Star and have been really, and you know, the, the language that everyone's using here, being authentic um, about who we are and being human about it. Like we've never had a global pandemic like this with all of the tools at our disposable to panic about it as much as we have been doing over the last year. And, um, and I think being really human about our own fallibility and being really human about what we don't know. The thing that, um, the things, the brands I think have, have, have been getting it totally wrong is like the ability to like suddenly be real virtual signalers, like to sort of be like, oh, we're like the most virtuous brand in the world. Like the example you gave of um, the supermarket boss, suddenly like, I'm here for you. You know, really? Because you weren't there for me when I didn't have any money last month. And you're not going to be, you know, and, and I think that that's a really dangerous place for a brand to play because it immediately erodes any credibility that, that they can build back. I think um, the brands that, are, that uh, are getting it right, the brands that have managed to maintain their own DNA, and I, don't, I can't think of a single brand that hasn't messed it up a little bit over the last year, um, but the brands that I think are doing better than others the ones that um, have been really, really true to who they are and admitted that and been vulnerable and failed publicly and talked about what their failings are and are putting in plans to sort of remedy it. You know, we've actually got three crises all sort of on top of each other, global pandemic, uh, social justice movement and economic, uh, huge economic uh, worries. That's, there's an awful lot of sort of mess in, in uh, if we go back to what 2019 felt like, to what 2020 feels like for us and for every single person on planet Earth. It's it's a very, very, very different world. And I think brand, the brands that are, that are winning and the brands that are acknowledging that. Yeah, and, and you're so right because it reminds me of two brands that I love. They've been so just, they've just stuck to like why they exist and what, what they're trying to do. So Tony's Chocolonely, amazing Dutch brand that's trying to solve the problem of slavery um, in the cocoa industry. And then their comms, if you look at over the last few months, is still, still like, this is, we're fighting our battle. This is how we're adapting to it. This is how we're still bringing joy to you. And Allbirds, which is this New Zealand shoe company, which has done some amazing like, uh, humble um, and generous giving of their shoes to the National Health Service in the UK, but they didn't put that up front. They just did it. And they got on with talking about how great their product was and why it matters. Um, so we're going to do some quick fire questions flying in from the, from the crew. Um, and then this will be able to continue in, uh, in the sessions in a few minutes' time. So starting with Elizabeth, uh, who has two questions for you. Alice, what is your brand name called again? Give it another shout out. I didn't hear it first time around. And are there any professional skills qualifications um, you have that useful for you to starting a beauty brand? Um, so it's Depixum, which is D-E-P-I-X-Y-M. Um, in terms of qualifications, I, mm, I, I went to uni for three months, decided it wasn't for me. So I call it my three-month holiday to Leeds. And I just, I just wanted to work and learn as much as I could in a corporate environment. I think a lot of it is just believing in what you're doing and knowing that it's the right thing i think i've not really got any like qualifications as such um that's really downplayed myself i mean i mean i'm good at my job <laughs> but i think um if if you are really passionate about it and you know i mean i know i know how a supply team works and i know all of the kind of background in beauty so i think as long as you find your sweet spot and like where you work really well. I think that's kind of all you need. 
Awesome. Um, here's a question for you, Corey. As a direct consumer startup with limited budget, what type of marketing is more cost effective? Social media marketing, email marketing, SEO, or digital PR? Um, it's like PR it's like university challenge question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> TR is definitely not going to be that cost effective because you're battling with a lot of noise. Like trying to get into the news right now, you know, as James pointed out, there's three major things happening in the world. It, it's hard to stand out from that point of view. Um, SEO is a long game, so you're going to be paying over a long stretch of time unless you can get um, a big website to feature you quite early on. Um, Email marketing, yeah, cost effective, but you need a way to build up the mailing list. So you'd have to go to social or some kind of other um, marketing area to, to build up the list. So obviously I'm biased towards social media. That seems to be what, what we've landed on as, as the best way of doing things. But um, why, 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 I mean, the bias is absolutely fine, but what's the, why do you justify that now? Why do you care about it and think it's as important now as ever? I think you for startups you can just be so targeted with who you're speaking to and it goes back to what you were saying about seth godin's idea of that kind of minimum viable audience like everyone's always talking about oh i want more likes i want more followers but actually the beauty of social is you can build a really intimate audience that all care about one thing whether it's you know the best makeup that they can wear that day or non-fiction books or whatever it is like you just want an audience that really cares about what you're doing and if you've got time to spend which startup founders often generally tend to have more time to spend on it than they do money and budget you can spend time reaching out to people organically on social that you think should be part of that audience and offering value to them and, and letting them know and learn about what you do as well. Yeah, it's totally true. And, uh, you know, Seth Godin is an example to us because we were trying to, this guy is someone who rents himself out for, you know, tens of thousands of dollars uh, a talk, quite rightly, to the corporate world. Um, and we got in for a whole hour for, to, for our Rebel Book Club community video chat uh, from the US, no charge, all his lessons, all his stories. He, he was awesome. And that was just contact you know hitting him up through twitter saying we, we love your book and we've got a community who wants to talk to you about it so i love the direct line you can get through it um the other thing that i learned about the importance of social especially this year from you cory was the 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 beautiful mix between art and science and actually going back to your head and heart alice at the beginning of this conversation like a lot of it is art is art you're trying it's experimental and that's the creative entrepreneurial thing and you haven't got much to lose you just try things and as long as you're not offensive you'll come out the other side um and then the science of ads and how you can track that and how you can learn from it by investing a little bit at a time and that's where you need usually need some help so it's, it's a great space to experiment but you do need time um i've got another question here from tim driver so during lockdown we switched our gin production tim tell us the brand so we can we can look you up to hand sanitizer so there were a few i remember um brew dog doing this and and pre producing their punk sanitizer uh, so maybe maybe they copied it off you uh, tim we used our social media as a communication tool we got some engagement from this but it seems that people have now forgotten how do you gain this engagement back um i'm assuming this is for for, for your gin businesses um so if you've pivoted i guess as, as a brand in these times for whatever reason how do you re-engage your audience well, I think first it's important to keep in mind that obviously we all care about our brand so much and we think about it from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed um, or even you know into the night. But other people have so much going on in their lives. So 
it might be that, that they need kind of gentle reminders of what it is that, that you do originally, why you do what you do, um, you know, why you pivoted, why you're now pivoting back. And going back to the whole point of this event, like really share that story with them and, and don't just do it, post about it once and then wonder why people aren't engaging, but actually build that up with a series of posts or perhaps with a big content piece, you know, like the founder talking to video and caption that up really nicely and, and edit the video to be um, quite slick about what this kind of change and, and pivot is um, and just keep like weaving in that message until people are, are paying attention, I would say. That's uh, a really good, important lesson. Um, and final thought uh, from uh, from yourself, James and Alice, uh, before we go off to our sessions on this uh, tiny little topic of how to stand out from the crowd. Well, I was to go to pick up on the gin. I think your name was Tim, and you've made a brand about gin, which is very pleasing in a rhyming way. Um, Tarsia Southeast Asian Gin, tarsiaspirit.com. Perfect. Um, my, my push would actually be, I would be honest with yourself about why you started making hand sanitizer. Because if you started making hand sanitizer to try to grow your gin brand, I think that that might not be the right reason to have made hand sanitizer. I think that what this shows is that human beings um, respond to people doing good things. And if you're able to sort of pivot the, the business like that, then maybe there are other ways, there are other things that the brand could do that would make a meaningful contribution to the communities that you're working in. And, um, and I would say, rather than be like, all right, we did this good thing at this point, now we're gonna go back to doing what we did, but we wanna still, we wanna bring all the credit that we got from doing this good thing back over to the thing that we were originally doing. I don't think that that's gonna work. I think that the, the, the world is too complicated for that. But I think what it should do, the lesson that I would take out of that is, oh great, so actually if the thing we wanna do is, is growth hack our brand, then maybe there are, maybe there's like, uh, you know, people talk about B corporations a lot, the triple mm. bottom line. Maybe we need to factor that into the way that we build our businesses. And so we work, you know, all those, we work out what is our model that gives back because we know that giving back will actually help our primary business. So it's not like a one-on, a one-off thing. It's just like a regular cadence. And I think that that'll, that'll go further. Yeah, that's really clear. And Tim's just explained as you were talking, uh, uh, James, about how they're doing it and why why it all fits in. So we're, I think we're all going down the same the same lines. Alice, do you have a closing thought or a, a message or a, about about uh, this world and what you've learned from it so far? I would just say like. If you believe it's right and you think that, you know, you have got a point of difference and you think you can be a success, just, just do it. Like, I do think like you, there is a tendency to overthink. And while I'm not saying just like, just go into it blindly, like trust your gut a lot and just figure it out along the way. You know, I'm not an expert in a lot of the things that we're doing at the minute, but I think try it, test it, see what works, see what doesn't, and then learn from it. And I think just keep doing that. That's the beauty of like now and startups and like everything being online. There's so much to learn and there's so much that is at our fingertips and we can just try it. So just keep doing that. Brilliant. Oh, that's a great, great note to end our chat on. Uh, James, Corin, Alice, thank you so much for your, uh, for your time joining us all the way from San Fran in the fog. Uh, in lockdown, James and, and Alice and Corey in the UK. You've been listening to a Virgin Startup podcast. Virgin Startup are a not-for-profit organization set up to help founders start up and thrive. 
Don't be shy. Let us know what you thought by leaving a review whenever you listen to your podcast. And to find more about how we can help you start and scale your business, head over to virginstartup.org. Thanks to our friends at Virgin Money, we're able to make our meetups free to attend, providing thousands of early stage founders with the support they need to start and scale businesses in the UK. Virgin Money are here to disrupt the status quo. They want everyone to have a much happier relationship with money. Through their brilliant colleagues, inspiring spaces and digital solutions, they are doing everything they can to offer a life more virgin. They provide a full range of banking products and services to help founders at every stage of their business journey. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and you'll join us next time for more founder stories.